Welcome to this week's module. This week we're going to talk about mechanical ventilation. I've broken the lecture down in parts one and part two. In the first part, we're going to talk about physiology of the lung and ventilation. We'll also talk about the indications for mechanical ventilation. In part two, we'll talk about the modes and the settings. We'll also talk about non-invasive ventilation as well as some troubleshooting. All right, let's get started. The objectives for this lecture, we're going to talk about the lung physiology and our reasoning for mechanical ventilation in the pediatric population. We're going to identify the different types of ventilation, including their modes and settings. We're going to describe the current use of ventilation in pediatric critical care. And then we'll talk about how we make our adjustments to the ventilation based on the patient's condition. So first, let's get started talking about physiology principles related to mechanical ventilation. So our anatomy can be really broken down into two sections, the upper and lower airways. In the upper airway, we have our nose, mouth, nasal pharynx, and the trachea. This allows for humidification, and also we, we trap particulates for an immune function. But always remember that the highest amount of resistance within all of your airways occur in the upper airways. Your lower airways are made up of your bronchi, your bronchioles, and your alveoli. And this is really the site where gas is exchanged. When we look at breathing, there's essentially two different types of breathing. There's negative pressure, which is normal breathing, what we do every single day. And this is where your diaphragm will contract. This actually pulls air into your lungs. And then when we go to exhale, we basically just allow the diaphragm to relax and air is passively moved out of the lungs during exhalation. Mechanical ventilation is just the opposite. Here we're gonna place a tube into the patient's airway we're gonna blow air into the lungs. This is gonna create a positive intrathoracic pressure. And then when we want the patient to exhale, we just basically stop pushing the air in and allow the air to passively move out. The only exception to this is high frequency oscillators. When we look at how elastic the lungs are, or that measurement of elasticity, we're gonna talk about compliance. And essentially, if we look at an equation, compliance is volume, the change in volume, over the change in pressure. To describe this in a little bit more detail, let's take a look at this graph. This graph is known as your lung hysteresis. And here off to the side, you have your volume, and then down at the bottom, you have pressure. And what this graph is telling us, at the beginning of a breath, down here at the bottom, it requires so much pressure to open the lungs. And then you need to continue applying that pressure to keep the lungs, to, to, to allow the lungs to completely fill. And then once they're full, the pressure is released, and then that exhalation phase begins, and then the patient's breath cycle returns back to baseline. So now let's look at the pressure volume loop. And this is a patient with normal compliance. Here again, we have the volume here on the left, pressure down at the bottom. And if we were to take this red line, it would actually be a 45 degree angle right down the middle of this graphic, which means basically when the patient starts to take their breath, there's a minimal amount of pressure required to open the lungs and to fully inflate before we hit exhalation. Now, if we look at a patient with poor compliance, you'll notice that that 45 degree angle is much lower. It's no longer a 45 degree angle, right? And much more pressure is required to open up the lungs and fully inflate it. And now if we look at someone with good compliance, we can see here that this angle is much greater than 45 degrees and not as much pressure was required to open the lung and get it to max inflation. 
So when we look at someone, when we look at these pressure volume loops, we're actually noticing if someone has good compliance, if their lung disease is pretty heavy, do they have poor compliance, and did our therapies work, and now their compliance, their compliance has improved, and now we can start working on measures to get them off the ventilator. Now, we bring you back to this graphic again, and I just want to point out there's two areas here that are of, of great importance. If we broke down the hysteresis in three sections, in the middle, you have your inspiration, exhalation. But on the, on the two ends, here at the bottom, you can develop uh, atelectasis if this pressure is too low, which means you're not allowing enough distensible pressure with your PEEP. Um, and that can cause some trauma to the alveoli as well. It's what we call atelectotrauma. And then on the opposite end, when we have these higher inflection points, or and this ideally is represented by the peak inspiratory pressure on the ventilator, if we overdo this and we overdistend the alveoli or overdistend the lung, we can cause barotrauma or volutrauma. Barotrauma is caused by higher pressures that can cause shearing forces within the lung. And volutrauma is, is just too much volume into the lungs or too much inflation of the lungs, which can cause trauma as well. So again, when we look at our ventilator settings, we want to apply the appropriate amount of peak inspiratory pressure and PEEP to prevent overdistending or collapsing of the alveoli. When we look at factors that affect resistance, we look at bronchoconstriction, upper airway or total airway edema, the amount of secretions a patient may have, and of course, the diameter of the endotracheal tube. Factors that will affect lung compliance or how stretchy the lungs are will include surfactant, pulmonary edema, if we hyperinflate the lungs or cause atelectasis. We can also have some lung restrictive disease where we can have pleural disease, chest wall diameter disease or chest wall um, a disease like such as scoliosis where you have a fixed uh, AP diameter of the lungs or if someone has an overdistended abdomen, this can also affect compliance because that overdistended abdomen will push up on the diaphragm and prevent it from fully um, expanding when, it's, when the patient's trying to take a breath. Now let's move on to some of the uh, indications for mechanical ventilation. When we look at indications for mechanical ventilation, there's really three major um, uh, types of failure or dysfunction that we're looking at. So the primary reason why we would put a patient on a vent would be, be, would be due to respiratory failure. And this is either because they have an inadequate oxygenation or an inadequate ventilation or both. So when I talk about oxygenation, I'm talking about how well we can load oxygen onto the hemoglobin so then it can be delivered to the tissues. And when I look at ventilation, I'm looking at how well can we remove CO2 from the bloodstream. Um, and if we have a combination of both, we may have an issue getting oxygen on and getting CO2 out. The other type of indication could be a cardiovascular dysfunction. And I'll talk about here in a few slides how positive pressure ventilation can actually improve cardiac function for the left ventricle. And then we have patients who have neuromuscular disorders or neurological conditions that ventilation, mechanical ventilation, may help improve or stabilize them during their hospitalization. 
So when we look at respiratory failure, there's a couple of uh, equations that we really want to take a look at. And the one that I found to be probably the most utilized is your PF ratio or your PaO2 FiO2 ratio. And what this ratio does, it can express oxygenation or how well a patient is, is oxygenating. And it also can help us identify to what degree or to how much um, disease we have with someone with ARDS or acute respiratory distress syndrome. So as you can see here, the PF ratio is your PaO2 divided by your FiO2. And normally we walk around with a PF ratio probably north of 350 to 500 tor. A patient with mild ARDS would be less than 300 but, but greater than 200. And a child with moderate would have 200 to 100 and then severe ARDS would be less than 100. Now the PF ratio probably got so much utilization because it's a very easy equation. You just take a blood gas, you take their PaO2 and divide it by the FiO2. We used to use the AA gradient, and as you can see here on this formula calculation, it's a much more involved calculation where we take atmospheric pressure, we subtract that from the partial pressure of water, uh, the partial pressure of water, multiply that by the FiO2, and then you subtract your PaCO2 uh, divided by a respiratory quotient minus your PaO2, which sounds like a lot, um, but typically normal pediatric values are anywhere from 5 to 15 millimeters of mercury at sea level on room air. And here in Florida, we're all at sea level. So you can see where this equation can be a little bit more involved, and that's why we call the PF ratio is really the poor man's AA gradient. When we talk about hypoxemia, we're talking about a de um, decrease uh, levels of oxygen on the hemoglobin or within the blood. And you can have a decrease in FiO2, you can have alveolar hypoventilation, uh, can be caused by VQ mismatching or intracardiac shunting or other diffusion um, abnormalities. When we talk about respiratory failure, we're talking about inadequate ventilation. And this is typically when your PCO2 is higher than 50 in the absence of chronic hypercarbnia, hy hypercapnia. And then you have an impending respiratory failure, which is rapidly increasing PA, uh, PACO2, more progressive or significant respiratory distress and fatigue. Some of the causes of hypercarbia can be alveolar hypoventilation and severe shunting. When we look at the goals of mechanical ventilation, we want to make sure we provide an adequate oxygenation. Again, that's an adequate delivery of oxygen to the tissues. And then we want to provide an adequate ventilation, and that's an adequate removal of CO2 from the bloodstream. We want to prevent ven uh, ventilator-induced lung injury. Going back again, that would be that barotrauma, volutrauma, or atelectotrauma. We want to reduce the work of breathing and make the patient comfortable. And then finally, we want to optimize that synchrony between the patient's breathing and the mechanical breaths we want to deliver. This graphic I really, really like, and because it really talks about how well we can oxygenate a patient. So if I talk about oxygenation and providing oxygen for someone, I'm really giving them not, more, not just oxygen. So your FiO2 does play a big part in that, but it's definitely a lot more than that. And when we look at our mean airway pressure, the, it's basically everything that's under the curve, right? So here's your baseline breath, right? So there's no pressure in the lungs at all. Our PEEP typically lives 
somewhere around five, right? And then your peak inspiratory pressure can be here at the top or the top of the breath, right? And then, so your peak, your peep here at the bottom, peak inspiratory pressure here, the difference between the two is your delta P, right? And then you have the duration or length of the breath or how long you're giving them as an eye time. And then you have the end of the respiratory cycle moving into the next breath. So the amount of time that you have underneath this curve delivering that oxygen to the patient really impacts the overall oxygenation. And again, when I talk about ventilation, simply put, it's the removal of CO2. And when we, when, we, when we look at how we can manipulate that on the ventilator, really the two things that affect ventilation the most is your rate and your tidal volume. And when we talk about settings, your tidal volume is usually set based on the therapy that you're giving. So we don't usually titrate that much. But when I want to titrate or uh, manipulate how much CO2 I'm removing, I will really adjust the rate. So for example, if you get a blood gas and the CO2 is relatively high, I'll increase the rate to blow off more CO2. And vice versa, if the CO2 is pretty low, I'll drop the rate so they can retain a little bit of CO2 to help equalize their pH balance. Um, and you're, you, you, how do you know if you have an adequate minute ventilation? Well, you're going to have a PaCO2 that's within the acceptable range for the therapy that you're delivering, and you'll have a normal pH. When we look at troubleshooting, when I, when I look at oxygenation, I'm going to look to see if the patient is receiving oxygen or how much oxygen they're getting. Is there an airway clearance problem? Do they have secretions in the ET tube? Is there a change in their compliance? Meaning, did they start off with uh, respiratory failure and now they've developed pulmonary edema or ARDS and now the lungs have become stiffer? Is there a persistent air leak or some type of air leak? Do we have a pneumothorax? Um, do we have an air leak in the system um, that needs to be corrected? Derecruitment is another big problem they can have where their alveoli have all collapsed because they've not received the amount of pressure that's required to keep them open. Is the patient comfortable breathing on the vent or now have they become asynchronous? And that's something that you're going to have to adjust, whether you give the patient some sedation or maybe back off on some of the ventilator settings that you have. And then overall, you know, what is their lung disease and has it gotten worse or is it getting better? And when I look at ventilation, again, you have that airway clearance issue, you have your air leak, your increased airway resistance, poor lung compliance, and metabolic alkalosis. Now, something to, uh, to remember, whenever I'm tr troubleshooting the ventilator, I go back to my PALS training and I always remember the DOPE mnemonic, right? So D stands for disconnection, O stands for obstruction, P could be pneumothorax, it could be... Um, um, yeah, pneumothorax, I think, is the big one. And then E could be your equipment. So you, you want to be able to look at those four things to see if they're part of the problem. And it will encompass most of what I just described here on this slide. When we look at cardiac dysfunction, essentially what's happening is that the, the heart cannot pump to provide the metabolic demands of breathing. It cannot match normal cardiopulmonary interactions. And the blood itself uh, cannot clear blood um, from the lungs, and you can have a persistent anatomical bypass or a right-to-left shunt. When we look at positive pressure with cardiac dysfunction, dysfunction, we have some advantages and some disadvantages. 
One of the advantages is it decreases the respiratory workload and metabolic demand. It also decreases the afterload that the left ventricle sees. And the easiest way I can describe this is if we increase intrathoracic pressure, we're now increasing the pressure within the chest. So when the left ventricle goes to pump outward into the aorta, it actually gets assistance from that positive pressure, that increased pressure in the chest. The disadvantage of putting a patient on positive pressure ventilation with cardiac dysfunction is that same increase in intrathoracic pressure pushes in on the right ventricle and decreases the, 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 the workload, uh, decreases the preload of the right ventricle, um, which can be problematic for someone who may need an increase of blood flow to their pulmonary bed. And these patients can be very risky during intubation because you do have to come up with some type of plan for rapid sequence intubation and depending on how bad their cardiac dysfunction is um, may determine how you go about intubating them. So let's talk a little bit about how positive pressure can actually help the left ventricle. And if you look at this diagram here, um, this blue box is going to represent uh, intrathoracic pressure. The little red box is the pressure that's actually in the left ventricle. And the arrow moving up is the amount of pressure we have in the aorta. So if my systolic pressure, or if I want to, if the, if the patient is requiring to demand a systolic pressure of 100 millimeters of mercury, then there has to be a force within the ventricle to generate 100 millimeters of mercury. And when you have a negative pressure that's sitting inside the thoracic cavity, and you think of it as a vacuum, you have something that's basically pulling a negative pressure within that cavity, the, actual, the heart actually has to pump 115 millimeters of mercury to get a final end result of this 100 millimeter blood pressure, this 100 millimeter mercury blood pressure. Now this is under normal breathing under negative pressure within the chest cavity. If we take the same patient and we intubate them and we want to um, have the same results, we want to, make, we want to in improve a blood pressure of 100 millimeters of mercury then the ventricle still has to create this 100, millis 100 millimeters of mercury within the left ventricle itself. But now I've applied a positive pressure here. So the heart really only has to push 85 millimeter millimeters of mercury outwards to achieve the same 100 millimeters of mercury blood pressure. So you can see the difference. You know, the heart struggles under normal breathing conditions with cardiac dysfunctions, but it's actually assisted when someone has positive pressure uh, ventilation. Now, when it comes to neurological disorders, oftentimes these patients are intubated for either a decline in their respiratory drive or a loss of their airway protective reflexes. So here we're doing this to protect their airway and to protect their respiratory system. We can also use the ventilator to help treat and manage someone with increased intracranial pressure. So as you know, or as we will find out when we start talking about traumatic brain injury in the coming weeks, we'll actually talk about how um, manipulation of your CO2 removal from the ventilator can actually improve or decrease your, uh, your, your ICP to help treat someone with a brain injury or someone that has um, an increased ICP from whatever disorder they, they have. And there's also some um, neuromuscular disorders that just require 
uh, ventilatory support, either during a period of their illness, such as in Guillain-Barre syndrome, or for someone that has a long-term or chronic neuromuscular disorder, such as someone with SMA or um, some type of muscular dystrophy. And this completes the slide um, slides for part one. I'll see you guys for part two.